From WLRN Public Media in Miami and Florida Public Radio, I'm Tom Hudson. This is After Hurricane Irma. Thanks for listening. The storm, while record-breaking in many ways, did not break the string of years two major Florida cities have escaped a direct hit. Miami was last a target for a storm in 1926. For Tampa, it was 1921. Each had just over 100,000 residents back then. Today, both cities are major population centers in the southeast, economic drivers for the Florida economy, hosting global ports, military installations, and Fortune 500 business centers. They're also consistently listed together as cities with the most at risk to hurricanes and rising water. Miami and Tampa were spared the worst of Irma, spared the worst of this hurricane, but fate and the weather forecast are no guarantees in the future. Tomas Regalado is the mayor of the city of Miami. He's with us in our studios at WLRN in Miami. Mayor Regalado, nice to see you. Welcome back. Good morning, Tom. Tampa Mayor Bob Buckhorn is with us from our partner station WUSF in Tampa. Mayor Buckhorn, nice to speak with you. Thanks for your time today. Good morning. Good morning, Alcalde. <laughs> hey, yes, my friend. Good morning. I miss you. Let's, I, miss you. I miss you, too. Mayor Regalado, <laughs> let's start with Miami. You experienced the, the storm before Mayor Buckhorn. What kind of damage did the city suffer? Well, you know, uh, we thought that we were lucky because we didn't get uh, a direct hit, and uh, that was scary. And I tell you, Tom and, and Bob, uh, with all what he did to prepare, no one is prepared for a Cat 5 or a Cat 4 uh, hurricane. However, we did uh, had more damages when that we what, uh, were told and that we expected. Uh, Where first was the damage concentrated in the city of Miami? Well, the damage uh, was, first of all, the marinas. Uh, the marinas took a, a direct hit. Uh, we had damage also uh, in Brickell because of the storm surge. That's we the have fiscal financial area of Miami. Exactly. We had uh, a lot of damage uh, in the Grove uh, because of the storm uh, surge, but most of the damage is of the infrastructure. Uh, we we didn't have uh, buildings that collapse. Uh, we we had uh, a lot of uh, damage of the infrastructure because uh, thousands of trees uh, were uprooted mm -hmm. and they took uh, part of the street. They took uh, sidewalks, uh, curbs, uh, even uh, sewer lines. Uh, and so we're we're out, we are on that process. We also uh, we also uh, had. Uh, a loss of, I think, and we, we don't know yet, of millions and millions of dollars uh, in the economy because uh, it's been now almost a week, and, and Miami Miami was with 89% uh, without power. Yeah. Now we are back to 19% without power, and we feel that by tomorrow, Tuesday, the, the whole city of Miami will be back. There's the lost productivity function exactly. of not only the preparation up to the storm, but then, of course, a week here after, a lot of folks still are not able to go to work or have work to go to because of the damage. Mayor Buckhorn, how about Tampa? What's the damage concentrated in the Tampa area? Well, it's largely uh, debris removal. Um, most, if not all, of the power, certainly in Hillsborough County, has been restored uh, there are a few outlying areas like Highlands County that has significant power outages. Um, but I will tell you that uh, it was a topsy-turvy week for us after fully expecting to uh, deploy to South Florida to help our friends down there, including uh, my friend Mayor Regalado. The storm turned our way. And when we were watching what was going on in Naples, fully anticipating that we would be next with a storm of that velocity, only to see it veer off and miss us by 30, 40 miles, 
Um, the damage was relatively minimal by comparison yeah. to what we were anticipating. Mayor Buckhorn, when you surged, looked at that forecast, what were the priorities for you on uh, really Friday and Saturday? Those were the days that uh, Tampa looked to be squarely in the sights of Irma. We did indeed. And, and for us, it was all about um, deploying our assets, making sure we had everything ready, f- fully anticipating that we were going to get hit, unlike we have ever been hit before. Um, the storm surge was the major uh, concern for us. We knew we could withstand the wind. We knew there would be trees toppled, there would be power outages, but it was the storm surge that really um, scared us. And as we saw in Miami, um, that storm surge is really in the in these storms what takes people's lives and, and damages the most property. We were lucky. We had very, very little storm surge. By every measure, Tampa escaped this one relatively unscathed by comparisons to our friends in the Keys or in Fort Myers and Naples area. Uh, Mayor Regalado, the city of Miami, you said no one is prepared for a Category 4 or 5. Ten days ago, that's what it looked like. Not only the city of Miami, but the city of Tampa and a good chunk of the peninsula of Florida may experience with Irma. Uh, What were the preparations that the city of Miami did this time that perhaps were unique from previous storm experiences? Well, first of all, Tom, what we did is that, for instance, uh, five days before the storm, we contracted uh, with uh, FEMA-approved private uh, hauling companies uh, in Georgia and in South Carolina with the caveat that the trucks will be here 12 to 18 hours uh, after the storm. So we got those two FEMA approved. Those two FEMA approved contractors uh, uh, were told to hire subcontractors here Mm -hmm. in South Florida. We also uh, hire an audit company uh, because FEMA, as as Mayor uh, Tampa knows, uh, and you, uh, doesn't pay if uh, we don't go by the protocol. So we we have an audit company that follows uh, the caravans of of trucks that Mm -hmm. are picking up. We also, uh, on Friday, I signed a declaration of emergency. Uh, that's it's a tool, a legal tool for the city of Miami. Even though the president and the governor had done it, the city of Miami, because it's a charter city, mm-hmm. uh, had to do, do something. So I signed uh, a, a declaration of uh, emergency that gave us the power to establish a curfew because we did had and expected some looting because of uh, no power. Right. And we did uh, had some looting uh, here in the city of Miami. Uh, we caught uh, 18 people, six of them uh, were actually looting uh, stores. We also uh, contracted uh, Tom and Mayor uh, five days before the storm, 10 tractor trailers of ice because we figured that, that we would need that. Yeah. And, and, those, and those tractor trailers were here on Monday night. Talking so, about uh, preparing for the debris pickup, preparing for the demand for ice in Miami. Mayor Buckhorn, did you take similar measures in Tampa? We did, and everything that uh, Mayor Regalado said was incorporated into our plan as well, including contracting for additional fuel with companies that were, Tampa was the priority, the only priority. Mm. One of the challenges that all of us had, though, is Normally in storms like this, you can stage fuel, you can stage ice, you can stage food, you can stage debris removal on one side of the state or other, the side that is not affected by the storm. This storm was so massive and so all-consuming 
that a lot of these entities had to stage Georgia, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina before they could come into Florida because every part of our state was touched by this. Uh, but yes, we have learned from all of the uh, natural disasters that this country has experienced, whether it's New Orleans, whether it's it's Houston, and we incorporate those success stories into our plan and try to avoid making the mistakes that were made in those other cities. Bob Buckhorn is the mayor of Tampa. Tomas Regalado, the mayor of Miami, speaking with them here on Florida Public Radio. Mayor Buckhorn, what is this uh, cleanup effort going to do to the budget for the city of Tampa? Do you have the money well, for it? Well, like uh, Mayor Regalado, we are dotting every I and crossing every T in anticipation of FEMA reimbursement. Um, he is exactly right. Unless you follow the FEMA protocols and make sure that you have appropriate uh, receipts for everything that you do, you will not re- be reimbursed. And so we are carefully making sure that we um, go through those processes. In the short term, there will be an impact on the budget. We don't anticipate it will be nearly as much as as what Miami or Fort Myers or Naples is experiencing. And we are confident, certainly based on our conversations with FEMA and the governor's um, urging of FEMA to be as responsive as they can, that we will be reimbursed for the vast majority of it. Mary Regalado, uh, same question to you. Do you anticipate having to find some new revenue sources? Well, uh, every, uh, every budget year, and tomorrow we have the budget hearing, the first uh, budget hearing, uh, I'm in charge of the budget to go before the commission. So we place $5 million in contingency. During the year, we don't touch that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in this case, just right at the end of the budget, uh, we have used most of, of this uh, money already. Hopefully, uh, some will be reimbursed. However, uh, we spend uh, $110,000 in ICE. That would not be uh, reimbursed. We had the police in Alpha Bravo even before uh, the the storm. Alpha Bravo so is 10 hour, 12 hours on, 12, 12 hours, hours off. Uh, 12 yeah. hours on, no, no vacation, no right. day off. Uh, we had the firefighters. But one thing that we did, and it really cost money, but I think it worked, is that... Uh, on Saturday, we use, we told uh, public works and solid waste personnel to also uh, be on Alpha Bravo on 12 uh, mm-hmm. hours. And we moved them to live on several uh, fire stations throughout the city. So after the storm, they were able to go out yeah. in different direction with bobcats and, and clear the street for uh, emergency vehicles and also for FPL trucks. Mayor Buckhorn, what about support <coughs> from the state, from uh, state agencies? What's your experience there? You know, it's interesting. I, I could not be more complimentary of Governor Scott and how aggressive he was in delivering the message that, first and foremost, that it, when mayors like Mayor Regalado and I said to evacuate, it was time to evacuate. And he also was very successful in corralling both utility companies and the and the fuel providers to make sure that they were able to move as successfully as possible. Now, every plan has its flaws, and and you only find out these things in the midst of the proverbial fog of war. Uh, But I think for the most part, in in my experience, um, it was a relatively seamless um, exercise. Mm -hmm. I mean, the state, the local governments, the the federal government, um, particularly with FEMA, were all working on the same page. There was no drama. 
everyone knew what their lane was and what their job was, and we all went out and executed it. But, you know, Governor Scott really deserves a significant amount of credit for being so message disciplined. Bob Buckhorn is the mayor at the city of Tampa. He's with us from our member station, WUSF in Tampa. Tomas Regalado is the mayor of the city of Miami with us here from our studios in Miami. Our coverage of after Hurricane Irma will continue. Preparation and resiliency in these two major cities in Florida next. This is After Hurricane Irma from Florida Public Radio. From Florida Public Radio and WLRN in Miami, I'm Tom Hudson. This is After Hurricane Irma, a special news program from your Florida Public Radio station. Thanks for listening. We're speaking with Tampa Mayor Bob Buckhorn from our sister station, WUSF in Tampa. Miami Mayor Tomas Regalado is with us from our studios here in Miami. Uh, Gentlemen, both of your cities are consistently ranked in the top five as the major metropolitan areas in the entire nation most at risk of any number of weather dangers, specifically storm surge. A CoreLogic study ranked uh, Miami number one at risk and Tampa number three at risk. Mayor Regalado, you uh, will be asking the city of Miami voters to okay $400 million in new borrowing, half of which will go to address flooding risk. What will happen if that money is okayed and what will happen if voters turn it down? Well, I can't think a reason uh, Tom, why voters of the city of Miami will not uh, agree to that uh, for several reasons. Number one, this bond issue will not raise property taxes because we have the capacity. Uh, the city of Miami has been able to come back from almost bankruptcy, and we have the capacity of issue exactly uh, around $400 million without uh, increasing uh, debt uh, in, in property taxes. About no, half of that's going to stormwater right. and flood control. Sea level rise, floating, uh, and resiliency. And, uh, and, and basically what we are trying to do with that uh, is to get guidance. Uh, first of all, we got a million dollars from the state, and I want to thank Governor Scott uh, because he promised me he would not veto that. Uh, we got a million dollars uh, to do a new sewer master plan with sea level rise uh, uh, included. That's just for the planning, though. That's, that's not just for the, for the planning. Building. That's no, right. no. That's just one million dollar uh, for that because you know there there are neighborhoods in the city of Miami that we have seen with the king tide in the last three years. Mm-hmm. Completely flooded, Bellmead, uh, Shortcrest, uh, and we have 11 pumps, so we need more. These are neighborhoods in the city of Miami, but uh, half of this bond measure you want to spend on new pumps, new resiliency. But this CoreLogic study found about $100 billion in reconstruction costs are at risk because of storm surge in Miami. Absolutely. seems like just a a drop in the bucket in terms of this uh, municipal spending. Absolutely, and and, and what, what this means is that if the voters approve about $200 million, then we can go to the state. Then we can go to okay. Washington if they listen and say, you know, we have something. I mean, gotcha. we have come to the table. However, uh, we we have to understand that if we don't get uh, anything from the state or for uh, from the federal government, we have to start doing. It will be the next mayors, the next commission, and they're going to have to do more things. And you say that because you're term limited out of your office after Absolutely. serving your terms. If voters don't approve this new spending uh, in November for the city of Miami for resiliency, will you still be a resident? <laughs> you know, I got to think uh, uh, about it. I mean, if the people of Miami, after uh, Harvey, after uh, uh, Irma, 
doesn't understand that we need to do something and now and that climate change uh, is a reality is not fake news uh listen i i don't know where to move uh, but uh I, i i gotta find a place because i i i see every day every day what is happening uh in the city of miami that's why we call this bond issue miami forever I'm not sure if uh, Tampa would uh, provide any solace to you. Mayor Buckhorn, maybe you've got a new resident in case uh, Miami voters don't uh, like this idea of new borrowing. Well, I love Bob. But, so. but uh, <laughs> Mayor Buckhorn, what about Tampa? What about uh, your ability, your willingness to, uh, to, to borrow money or, for that matter, find money within the budget? Well, first of all, I'm termed out in April of uh, 19 as well. Maybe Tomas and I, you can retire up here, Tomas, and you, you and I will hang out at the West Tampa Sandwich Shop. <laughs> With Maito. Yes, and, and a Cuban sandwich with salami. <laughs> Mayor, oh, Mayor no way. No, is, don't well, start this one. <laughs> but, but, but Mayor Buckhorn, Mayor Regalado is looking to borrow $400 million on the city's credit and the taxpayer's credit. Uh, should Tampa voters be expecting the same kind of thing? Well, let me let me start at the beginning, and Mayor Regalado has been relentless about this. For the state government or the federal government to not acknowledge that the climate is changing, and the impacts of climate change on infrastructure, particularly low-lying cities, is doing us all a great disservice. It's mayors that have been leading the way on this discussion. Uh, two years ago, we got the city council here to uh, agree to a stormwater assessment in which all the residents are, are taxed a small amount that for the first time in probably 40 years, Tom, has allowed us to start making significant improvements to our stormwater system. I mean, just by way of example, in the last year, we have removed 50,000 tons of debris from our stormwater system. That's barnacles, that's trash, that's uh, grass and landscaping cuttings, it's stormwater debris. That allows the system to function and flow much better. It also allows us a dedicated revenue source to enhance and to create more capacity in our stormwater system. It's not the plant for us that's the problem. It's the hundred-year-old pipes right. that we deal with, trying to deal with 2017 growth patterns. I, and not only It that, but also dealing with 2017 sea level uh, le levels. Uh, when those pipes were put in, those sea levels, according to the science and what we've seen in the research, were you know, several inches lower. They were. And if you look at, at what the uh, anticipated temperature of the Gulf and the, and, the, uh, and the Bay will be over the next 20, 30 years, you know, a two-degree increase in Celsius allows for not only the storms to continue to, to feed off of that warmer Gulf air, uh, but it will also allow sea level rise. The king tides in Miami are, are, are unique. We don't have those here in Tampa, but I can tell you unequivocally uh, that we have seen a change in our climate here and the impacts on our day-to-day -day lives. What assistance, financial or otherwise, would you like to see from the state and from the federal government, Mayor Buckhorn? I would say two things. Oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Mayor Buckhorn. Two things for us. One, an acknowledgement that climate change is real and that, that, that science is accurate. And number two, if this president is interested in assisting cities around the country, come up with an infrastructure plan that allows us to reinvest in our infrastructure and put people to work. If he were to do that, I think we could get started as mayors on rebuilding the infrastructure of this country, which largely would include the infrastructure underground Um, that's not sexy, that you can't cut a ribbon on, but it's so vitally important to the quality of life of the people that live in America's cities. Mayor Regalado, what would you like to see from your government partners? Well, first of all, information. 
uh, and I think that Bob is correct. Uh, I mean, I understand uh, it's an ideological thing. I understand uh, this is a policy matter. But, you know, somebody has to say to the mayors of the city or to the residents, more important, there is a new normal. Uh, now, the, the, the normal was, uh, you know, we got one or two storms, but the new normal is that we, we have five storms, got five, you know, in less than one month. The new normal is that storms move fast on water and stay uh, put on, on land. The new normal is the storm surge. We have never, ever, ever seen the storm surge that we saw here in Miami. Mm -hmm. And people just say, you know, the experts just say it's atypical. So we have brilliant minds in this country. At least uh, tell us, well, you know what? Uh, we don't want to call it climate change, uh, but like uh, forest gum, it happens, you know, and, and this is a new normal. So you guys have to prepare for new normal. And, uh, you know, this, I trust the city of Miami uh, will decide that we should be prepared. Uh, this is about uh, us, our children, and the children of our children. And I, I just hope that someone at the state level, uh, that someone at the federal level uh, say, well, you know what, I, I think that we should look into it and at least uh, give a report uh, to the residents uh, of the United States that are in harm's way like Tampa and Miami. The the contributions around climate change and the ideological uh, debate around climate change may be happening at state capitals. It certainly is happening in the national uh, federal capital. But at city halls, it's about adaptation. It's about resiliency. It's it's about it's about residents complaining. Right. It's about pumps and what being are they installed. Say, what, and what are they complaining about, Mayor Regalado and Mayor? Buckley? Floating, floating, floating. Uh, I mean, we we have eleven pumps in the city of Miami. We feel that we need at least uh, five to ten more. We're just finishing one in Brickle, which, by the way, had a, a typical yeah. uh, event. Those residents that are now complaining about flooding, should they continue to be residents in those neighborhoods, or should those neighborhoods wind up uh, uh, just going back into uh, into the, the high waters? Tom, the government has the obligation uh, to save those uh, neighborhoods. Uh, to protect the investment mm -hmm. of these people. There is no way that we can say uh, to residents uh, in the Upper East Side of Miami or even in Coconut Grove, we have 100,000 residents yeah. uh, in, in the waterfront. We can't just say, hey, you know you know what? Uh, bad luck. Mayor you Buckhorn, have, do you feel the same way about those barrier islands out in Tampa? I, I do indeed, and, and this conversation is reminiscent of what they said to the folks in the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans as well. Mm. Um, people are coming to Florida. They're going to live on the water. They want to live on the water. I think we can accommodate them with the appropriate infrastructure investments. Such as in Tampa? Well, I think it's it's improving our stormwater system. I think it's adapting some of the uh, building codes that Miami-Dade did in the aftermath of, mm -hmm. of Hurricane Andrew. I think it's uh, again, elevating structures at the time of construction. I think there are techniques that can mitigate the impact of this, but the impact is very real. And for those of us at the local level, Tom, it's not a theoretical debate about who's to blame for climate change. Climate change is real, but for us, it's a quality of life issue. When someone's house floods in an afternoon thunderstorm in Tampa, because our stormwater system is not adequate to handle that amount of water, 
Um, that's our problem. But we also need assistance in terms of making significant financial investments in our infrastructure system. We don't have the capacity at the local level to handle it all ourselves. Mayor Buckhorn in Tampa, after this experience with Irma and the lead up to it, uh, many identified your city as among the least prepared to deal with this kind of uh, a catastrophic threat. What are you doing differently this week and in the weeks and months ahead that are left in your term because of Irma? Well, first of all, I would take exception to significant parts of that uh, story that was written. But that being said, um, we recognize that we are a low-lying city, that we live on a shallow bay, that we have not been hit in 90 years, and that our time will come up at some point. Um, So we are working as quickly as we possibly can with the resources that we have and it's largely focused on our stormwater system. Mm-hmm. Our ability to move that standing water out into the bay once it occurs is critical um, in terms of dealing with the effects of a surge. So in the short term, increasing capacity in our stormwater system, cleaning what we have currently, you know, redigging drainage ditches and, and retention ponds and cleaning out pipes is top of mind for our agenda moving forward. What about seawalls and that kind of shoring up and reinforcement of the actual waterfront? Would that be useful at all? And do you have any investments planned? Uh, To some degree, it would be. And certainly along our river, where most Mm -hmm. of our development is occurring, um, we are building to modern standards. We're putting a lot of riprap there to break up the surge, forcing uh, buildings to be elevated above the 100-year floodplain. Um, So yes, but, but we have limited financial capacity, like any city in America, to do these major infrastructure projects. Uh, Mayor Regalado, final minute left. Uh, how does Hurricane Irma change your planning and the planning of the city of Miami for the next one? Actually, we uh, uh, we were uh, planning this bond issue uh, for two years mm-hmm. now, and we know uh, we know that we did uh, several things, uh, but. Uh, but Tom, you know the the fact of the matter is that we need money right now and soon to start raising the seawalls. That's paramount. That's a priority. We need to build more pumps. We need to finish our storm sewer master plan with uh, sea level rise. And sea level rise is uh, for real in the city of Miami. Uh, so th- this is, this is not fake news or anything. This is this is for real. So we need to adapt. And we need to uh, start uh, planning. Hopefully, uh, I'm telling you, uh, hopefully the people of Miami uh, will understand that they need to work for the future. Miami Mayor Tomas Regalado with us from our studios here in Miami. Thank you so much, Mayor Regalado. Nice to see Thank you Thank you. Uh, and Tampa Mayor Bob Buckhorn with us from our studios, uh, from, uh, from our sister station studios at WUSF in Tampa. Mayor Buckhorn, thank you for your time and your comments as well. Thank you. You are listening to After Hurricane Irma from WLRN Miami. This is Florida Public Radio. Hurricane Irma seemed to spare most of Florida a direct hit by the storm itself. But days without power and days of unpaid time off or maybe no work at all to go back to has cast a spotlight on the poverty in some of the most vulnerable communities. Poverty that has existed long before Irma made landfall. WLRN's Nadej Green reports from Miami. Before a hurricane, people are told to stock up on supplies, enough to last at least three days. Many families in Florida could not do that. And my kids have not had nothing to eat this morning. Mary McKenzie lives in Little Haiti with her six children and her husband. She says she bought groceries before the hurricane warning, things that needed refrigeration. After four days with no electricity, most of it has gone bad. We just meet and ends meet. 
That's why when this storm came, we didn't have money to be doing all this. But now we had to dip into money we had for other bills to feed our kids every day. That's how we've been feeding our kids. You no, know, it's getting to the point where it's starting to break us because $50, $60 a day is a lot of money. Her neighbor, Tamika Ellington, is also struggling. Ellington says if school was open, at least she wouldn't have to worry about her five-year-old son getting enough food. Well, at least he can eat at school. Yeah, at least they can eat at school. But it's, it's, yeah, it's not, so it's like more headache and more frustration. After Hurricane Harvey hit Texas, the Houston School District opened nine schools that served breakfast, lunch, and dinner to about 70,000 families. On Thursday, the Miami-Dade School District handed out about 30,000 ready-to-eat meals, MREs, often used by the military in combat zones. When Ellington heard police officers in her neighborhood announcing a free ice giveaway at a nearby park, she went. All over South Florida, people have been desperate for ice. Ellington wanted to be able to give her son something cold to drink. While waiting for the ice to be unpacked from the trucks, she said she feels like poor people in Miami are forgotten. Then she saw Miami Commissioner Keon Hardiman helping with the ice. This has always been a place where people were living um, meal to meal, month to month, you know, just trying to, trying to get by. He says the ice and food giveaways help, but can't fix the underlying long-term issue, poverty. Uh, Miami is a place of the have and the have-nots. So you have a number of individuals that do have the ability to buy food, supplies, canned goods, etc. And then you have a great number of people who do not have that ability. You know, we just have to do better so that people can live better within our communities. Rufus James was walking around Liberty City looking for small jobs after Hurricane Irma. Well, I'll be cutting y'all, I'm saying. He normally mows lawns, but he's gotten no work since the hurricane. He has three grandchildren at home he needs to feed, and he's been without power for four days. Well, I'm looking for some food, you know. We don't have no food. Thomasina Smith also lives in Liberty City. Her daughter and three grandsons live with her. We don't have no power. We don't even have any food anymore, but just seeing um, snacks and stuff for the kids and stuff. Today will be the first day without food. Yeah, today will be the first day. She says the small neighborhood stores in walking distance to her home are bare. And even when they're not, many are only accepting cash because the power's out. So people with electronic benefit food cards, commonly known as food stamps, can't swipe to buy anything. I'm Nadege Green in Miami. Still to come in our program, getting the power turned back on. About 4% of Florida remained without power as of 6 o'clock this morning, eight days after Hurricane Irma first came ashore in the Florida Keys. You are listening to special coverage from Florida Public Radio after Hurricane Irma from WLRN Miami and Florida Public Radio. From WLRN Public Media in Miami and Florida Public Radio, this is After Hurricane Irma. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. One week ago, more than 6.5 million Florida electric customers were without power. About a half million or so remain. While Irma was a Category 4 storm when it first made landfall in the Keys, wind gusts across most of Florida did not top Category 1 hurricane strength, according to the National Weather Service. Yet the storm put almost 90% of Florida power and light customers in the dark. FPNL is the largest electric utility in the state. Three-quarters of Duke Energy's Florida customers also lost power.
The repair work continues on this Monday, and the investigations into why these power systems couldn't withstand Irma likely will get underway in the days and weeks ahead. J.R. Kelly joins us now from his office in Tallahassee. He is the public counsel of Florida, where he represents utility customers to state and federal regulators. Mr. Kelly, thank you for joining Florida Public Radio today. Thank you for having me, Tom. How do you judge the response from the public utilities to the damage left by Irma? Well, I, I uh, it's hard at this point to give a full judgment because it'll depend on uh, the review of all the costs and the actions taken by the utilities that certainly will not uh, take place until months after uh, these events. Uh, for example, when Hurricane Matthew hit last year, uh, uh, we still have not had the filing from Florida Power and Light mm. to be able to look at the full magnitude of those costs and how the utility reacted. So this is a bigger storm, and, and we just just don't know at this point when they will make their um, petition. You're, you're very cautious there, waiting for the report and uh, some documentation from the power companies from FPNL, but also Duke Energy is involved with this. All 67 counties of Florida experienced some effect from Irma and much of the service territory from FPL. All the service ter- territory from FPL was affected, and also Duke Energy. But what's your sense of the response, what you're hearing in the media coverage, what you're experiencing maybe uh, personally or professionally with colleagues around the state? Well, I think first and foremost, it's it's been a little disappointing to hear uh, in, in the news that uh, um, with all the new smart grid uh, uh, enhancements that cost customers billions of dollars over the past few years, that uh, when they're calling up uh, a utility and the utility reports that their power's back on, and lo and behold, they get back to their house and they have no power. They call the utility a second time, and they say, "Oh, our smart grid's telling us your power's on," and they have no power. That that's a little disappointing because uh, the companies have spent billions of dollars in in uh, upgrading and enhancing their smart grid. Mm-hmm. So that's something certainly we're going to take a close look at in the months to come. $3 billion, in fact, has been spent by Florida Power & Light alone since uh, Hurricane Wilma in 2005 really decimated its power grid. Although uh, there has been caution voiced by some within the community that those upgrades uh, really have been directed at uh, 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 picking up the pace of repairing the system as opposed to preventing outages. Uh, have we seen that uh, in exercise here because of Hurricane Irma? Well, I, I think that there's probably has been some some of the enhancements made uh, 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 did prevent additional damage that could have been done. For example, I know that there was a replacement of a lot of the te- the uh, the light poles with concrete poles, right. and and the reports I have heard is the concrete poles uh, are still standing, and and uh, and the the loss of the Wooden poles was kept to, to a minimum this time uh, as compared to when you go back to, to the hurricane season of 2004-2005. You know, the one thing that, unfortunately, you can't prevent is the debris that flies during a hurricane. And if it knocks lines down, even though a pole may be still standing, if a line's down, it's not doing you any good. Uh, an- another thing is I, I know a lot of people are or uh, uh, calling for undergrounding of utilities, mm-hmm. that that in and of itself is not going to uh, necessarily reduce 
outages to to uh, uh, a, a total minimum. For example, here in Tallahassee, I have underground utilities in my na- my neighborhood, and we lost power for 12 hours. Why? Because one of the power lines that comes into the neighborhood, uh, one of the transformers got hit by a fallen tree, and therefore my power was out. So. Yeah. It's it's it, Two, underground. It can be a double-edged sword. Uh, J.R. Kelly is the public counsel of Florida. He represents utility customers to state and federal regulators. And to this point about debris-caused uh, line outages, overhead line outages, uh, let's listen to Florida Power and Light Vice President of Communications Rob Gould speaking to the media on Friday. We're seeing quite a bit of these trees that have come into our lines, and that has been a, a challenge for us. Now the good news from an infrastructure perspective is we've not seen the pole damage that we had seen previously in, say, Hurricane Wilma back in 2005. None of our poles have come down as a result of wind into the poles themselves. So the poles were able to withstand the wind. Some of those older poles maybe not be able to withstand uh, big branches, trees, and palm fronds. Uh, this brings up the uh, the situation around tree trimming. Uh, J.R. Kelly is public counsel of Florida. It seems uh, really just basic maintenance as uh, we look around the vegetation-rich neighborhoods uh, in throughout South Florida. Who's responsible for tree trimming around these power lines? It, it is the direct responsibility of the utilities. They, they're required annually to come in in front of the Public Service Commission, which is the regulatory agency for the investor-owned utilities, such as Florida Power and Like and Duke and Tampa Electric. And they must report uh, what their, their annual plans are for uh, storm hardening. And that certainly includes tree, tree trimming, vegetation uh, trimming, uh, or in some cases, uh, completely taking out the vegetation, mm-hmm. depending on uh, where you're at and and uh, what the the uh, growth is. I got to think this is going to be uh, a, a focus and a line of questioning around tree trimming investments on the part of uh, FPNL and Duke Energy, the biggest electric providers in the state, and uh, evidence of that kind of spending and where they're spending it. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, that's going to be first and foremost hmm. uh, that uh, we want, you know, to, to the best of our ability, we want to make sure that the, the money that's spent, and, and make no mistake, this is customer money that's being spent, right. uh, is being spent prudently uh, uh, and reasonably uh, to ensure that those activities did, in fact, take place. And if they didn't, then certainly why they did not. Uh, we're speaking with J.R. Kelly, the public counsel of Florida. He represents utility customers to state and federal regulators, uh, most notably the Florida Public Service Commission, which is the group that uh, oversees electric utility. And we did invite the uh, chairman of the uh, PSC, uh, Julie Brown, to participate in our conversation. She sent us an emailed statement that read in part, quote, while it may seem appropriate a week after the storm, but uh, through recovering, for the chair of the Florida Public Service Commission to participate in media interviews and express comments on the quality of responsiveness of regulated utilities and to opine on the capabilities of utilities to respond to storms. One of the key statutory responsibilities of the chair is to preside over legal evidentiary proceedings whereby utilities come before the commission, file legal documents, and seek cost recovery associated with storm events. And then the chairwoman continued that the uh, uh, Public Service Commission 
must sit in judgment of the matter, review all evidence presented from the parties, and render a decision in the matter which best serves the interest of the public. The law expressly prohibits a commissioner from commenting on any matter that will foreseeably come before the commission. So they did not accept our invitation to discuss some of this today. J.R. Kelly did as the public counsel of Florida. Let's talk about paying for this restoration. FPL customers, for instance, are still paying uh, for the restoration from Hurricane Matthew, which, as you mentioned, was a much smaller storm and impacted a much smaller area of uh, FPL's service area. What do you anticipate seeing from the electric uh, companies, FPL, Duke, and others, as they look to uh, uh, to help uh, pay for the restoration efforts? Well, I, as so much as so far as how much a, the cost is going to be, I, I have no idea. But I I will be very surprised if we're not looking. Uh, near a billion dollars collectively for all of the uh, utilities. Uh, I, I mean, let's give a little bit of Matthew, sc- give us a little bit of scale, Jr. If you can, about a billion sure. dollar restoration effort. If that is in fact a price tag, that's close for Irma. Well, it, it depends on the utility. But uh, if I'll give you an example. Um, Hurricane Matthew, uh, Florida Power and Light first estimated that the the damages were there were approximately three hundred eighteen million dollars, and that was. Uh, uh, came out to be about $3.10, somewhere in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. per 1,000 kilowatt hours per month for a residential customer. Which were, which uh, FPL customers are still paying today. That's a 12-month yeah, surcharge. Yes, sir. Uh, and so they'll be paying it for a few months more. And as I mentioned earlier, they Florida Panorite still has not filed their final accounting for Matthew. So therefore, we have not had an opportunity to vet those numbers and and dig down to see if those are their actual costs once the actual cost is is confirmed and approved by the commission then there could be a, a refund or an additional surcharge uh, added to that three dollars and ten cents or so surcharge uh, about the time that uh, the matthew surcharge will come off the bill uh, i would anticipate a new surcharge mm-hmm. being placed there for irma and if um, and that could be the case for Duke Energy customers as well as other electric customers in the state of Florida. Is that, that correct? That, that is that is absolutely correct. They they will all file. They will uh, be able to put a surcharge on, and it, it it's a it's a interim surcharge, if you will, because it'll go for approximately a year, and and then once the final uh, accounting is filed, and we have a chance to uh, uh, vet it review it, analyze it, and then the final amount is confirmed by the commission, mm-hmm. they will then be a true up after that has to the, the consumer. Has bill. there ever been an instance of a true down? In other words, the surcharge was actually higher than what the actual repair and restoration costs turned out to be? There, there have definitely been true downs, uh, uh, if you will, for certain charges in the past. Whether there's actually been one for a storm mm-hmm. surcharge, I don't know. The okay. last time that the real storm surcharges uh, were... Uh, real quick, Mr. Uh, Kelly. I'm sorry, what were, were in place were in 2004, 2005, and they were quite large yeah. at that time. Those were the big storm years. J.R. Kelly, yes, we've got to keep it there. Uh, public counsel for the state of Florida. He represents utility customers to state and federal regulators joining us from Tallahassee. You are listening to After Hurricane Irma from WLRN Miami. This is Florida Public Radio. Finally, this storm will be remembered by anyone and everyone in its path, even for the most hardened hurricane veterans. 
Larry Kahn is the editor of the Keynoter newspaper serving the Florida Keys. He did not evacuate, a decision he came to regret. We spoke with him before, during, and after Irma. Saturday, September 9th, 12.34 p.m. The eye of Hurricane Irma is 170 miles southeast of Key West. I'm stuck here in Marathon, Florida, middle Florida Keys, between Key West and Key Largo. And a lot of people have been saying, why didn't you get out when they told you to get out? Well, it's because the storm kept changing. But I shouldn't have stayed this long. I'll be honest. I should have left. On my street, our canal that heads out to the Atlantic, I see the water already rising. I'm not real encouraged that I'm going to have a place to come back to. Um, my car? Who knows? So, it is what it is. Um, you know, I've been living here 23 years. Been through a lot of hurricanes. This one... Everyone took seriously. Sunday, September 10th, 1231 a.m. The eye of Hurricane Irma is 80 miles south-southeast of Key West. Well, I gotta tell you, I'm here at Marathon High School, which is halfway between Key West and Key Largo, and there's only about 50 people here at the shelter. It's actually called the Refuge of Last Resort. But we have the county sheriff here, and all the lieutenants, they're here, so I feel like I'm the safest guy in the world right now. I got a good bunkie next to me, a guy named Cowboy, who I've gotten to know all day. Um, I'm hearing around the building the bathrooms have failed. Outside, it's it's bad. It's really bad outside. Uh, I don't know, numerous hours ago, uh, the goalposts on the football field, they were down. Um, but I will tell you, we've been having power issues here. You know, sometimes the lights will all go flashing at once, and then they'll all go dark. But, you know, i got to say, everyone's been really respectful. Hell, I think we got, like, 50 animals. People in the classroom over there where they got, I think, three dogs and five cats. Remarkably, what I haven't seen, we don't have any children here. I've been living down here 23 years. I've never evacuated. I've never left my house. And I got really confused. I didn't know what to take. I mean, at one point, and I'm not kidding, I put a screwdriver I didn't know what to do. And so I was like, why am I taking a screwdriver? You know? What I would really love right now is to find my earbuds, because I thought I threw them in my bag, and you know, they didn't. We're not in the worst of it yet. Worst of it's going to hit in the morning. Friday, September 15th, 1.10 p.m. The eye of Hurricane Irma made landfall five days ago. People woke up. Um, some thought that the worst of the hurricane had hit. But then, of course, you know, the winds were still kicking up. And then we started seeing a little bit of a storm surge. Uh, it never got nearly as high as they said it would. Although the rental car I had did start to float away for a little while. And remarkably, it started later in the afternoon. But that Sunday morning, it was very, very windy. But everybody wants to see the storm surge. At this point, people weren't getting antsy to get out yet. I was uh, staying in the common area. And the guy walked out. Turns out it was a guy I hadn't seen in like four years. And he said, you know, I'm thinking of walking home. Um, you know, do you want to go with me? And so I was just dilly-dallying, you know, and I was like, but I don't want to spend another night shelter. It's really dark in there. It's quiet. So uh, I packed up my uh, my computer, my bag, my blanket, and we jumped in my rental car and um, we drove the quarter mile down to his house we get there and we walk in he had about five inches of rain on the floor maybe a little bit more come in on the roof but overall really really good shape 
So I stayed at his house. You know, again, no electricity, no sewer, no any of that. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And I got to tell you, I was in a lot better situation than anybody else. We ate steaks. We ate chicken breasts. We ate chicken tenders. We ate bacon for breakfast. We ate nachos. He had a stock bar. We didn't abuse that by any stretch. We just had one cocktail a day. And we spent hours and hours and hours and hours catching up, talking, because there was nothing else to do. So now it's Wednesday morning. My family hadn't heard from me since Saturday morning. Nobody had an idea where I was. In hindsight, strictly the hurricane, um, I would go. You got to make the decision and you got to be decisive. I wasn't decisive this time. I'm a poor example for people doing the hurricane planning. I'm the first to admit that. You know, everybody's got to make their own individual choice. Myself, this time, I would have made a different choice. Larry Kahn, editor of The Keynoter. He weathered Hurricane Irma in the Middle Keys. You've been listening to After Hurricane Irma on Florida Public Radio. It is produced by WLRN Public Media in Miami. We received production help this hour from our sister station, WUSF, in Tampa. Reporting for this program came from WGCU in Fort Myers, WMFE in Orlando, WUSF in Tampa, WQCS Fort Pierce, and WJCT in Jacksonville. Our thanks to all of our Florida Public Radio sister stations. Alicia Zuckerman, Terrence Shepard, Gina Jordan, Wilson Sayre, Sammy Mack, they all helped with editing and producing. Pilar Ribe is our technical director with engineering help from Doug Peterson. John Labonia is the general manager of WLRN Public Media, and I'm Tom Hudson. This special program from Florida Public Radio has been a presentation of WLRN Public Media in Miami.